Good morning. My name is Rick. Let us uh, give attention to uh, what God says to us in the Bible. In uh, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 14, starting in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Skipping down to verse uh, 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Skipping again to verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, oh, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Well, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of God to us. Thank you, Rick. When I was in middle school, I think seventh or eighth grade, I remember going to the local mall with my mother. Uh, it was the Courtyard Mall at the time. It's no longer there. And I specifically remember after parking the car in the parking lot, we would make our way to the mall, and there was a, a long bridge connecting the lot to the mall, that I would intentionally walk about 10 to 15 feet ahead of her. I wouldn't walk beside her, I wouldn't walk right in front or behind her, but I made sure to maintain distance between me and her as if there was an invisible force field separating us. Why did I do that? It's because back then, I didn't want to be seen with my mom. I didn't want people to know that I went to the mall with my mother because 
in my preteen mind, that wasn't cool. And so wherever we went, you'd see this gap between us. Of course, until it was time to buy something, then I had no problem asking her for money. And as I look back at those days and the way I acted and try to process why I did that, one thing that strikes me is that during that time, my mother never said anything to me. She never said, Jeffrey, what are you doing? I'm right here. Can you come walk with me? She let me be. And I could only wonder the hurt she must have felt to see her oldest son too ashamed to be associated with her. Has that ever happened to you, dear friends? Where someone you loved and cared about didn't want to acknowledge you didn't want to be associated with you. Well, this experience of gut-wrenching denial is at the forefront of our passage this morning. For those of you taking notes, my message can be divided into two distinct halves. In the first half, I'm going to go over why Peter's actions are so grievous here why his actions are so disturbing. In the second half, we're going to focus then on the lessons God wants us to learn from this event. And so first half, why his actions are so shocking, disturbing, and the second half, the lessons we can learn. So starting with the first half, there are three reasons why Peter's actions here are so disturbing. The first is perhaps the most obvious one. It's one thing for Peter to deny Jesus three times in a vacuum, if it was an isolated incident. But it's quite another when you consider the greater context, more specifically when you consider what just transpired a few hours before. A few hours before, in verse 27, Jesus predicts that all of his disciples will fall away. To this, Peter takes great offense. Jesus, how can you say that? I would never abandon you. I would never deny you. Perhaps these guys would, but I never will. To which Jesus responds in verse 30, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus like, I'd rather, Peter says, I'd rather die than deny you. This happened just a few hours before This exchange didn't happen a few weeks before or even a few days before where Peter can feign, you know what, I totally forgot. No, while Peter is warming his hands by the fire, this exchange, this conversation, you know, was circulating in the back of his mind. And yet, despite his 
passionate claims of loyalty, he eats his own words. Reason number two, Peter's actions occur over a sustained period of time. If Peter acted out of sheer panic, if perhaps a a Roman centurion grabs Peter and thrusts him on the wall and says, do you know who Jesus is? We could perhaps understand why Peter would say, I have no idea who this guy is. In sheer panic and terror, all of us here know what it's like to fight, flight, or freeze. But such an explanation doesn't apply here. Peter's denials occur over a sustained period of time. There's one scholar who studied roosters crowing in Jerusalem for over 12 years. Why he embarked on such a research project, I don't know. He probably had a lot of time, but he listened for roosters crowing in Jerusalem and was able to identify three distinct distinct times that roosters crowed. At 12.30, 30 minutes past midnight, 1.30, and 2.30 a.m. What this means then is that between Peter's first denial and last denial, over an hour passed. What this means then is that Peter had time to process what he just said to the servant girl. He had time to prepare for the next eventual accusation that might come his way. He had opportunity to recant his previous confession. You know what, guys? I lied to you. I do know this man. And yet over that long duration, Peter digs in his heels and he continues to deny over and over again. The point being, these are not denials of passion committed in the heat of the moment. These are premeditated, sober denials. Third reason why his actions are so reprehensible is the increasing intensity of his denials. They escalate. In the first denial, a servant girl says, you also were with the Nazarene, to which he says, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. He feigns ignorance. But in the third denial, he doesn't just feign ignorance. He does something incomprehensible, unconscionable. In the third accusation, A group of bystanders accuse him in verse 70. Certainly, you are one of them, meaning one of the 12 apostles, for you are a Galilean. They pick up on Peter's accent. They notice that he's from Galilee. They know that Jesus grew up in Galilee. They put two and two together and say, certainly, you are one of them. And how does Peter respond? In verse 71, it reads, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. 
Now, this is the ESV translation. He began to invoke a curse on himself. I want you to know that I think the English Standard Version overreaches a bit here because when you look at the original Greek, you don't find the words on himself. All it states is that he began to invoke a curse and swore. It doesn't tell us who Peter curses. And so the ESV assumes most likely he cursed himself. In other words, Peter said, I am telling you the truth. If I'm lying, may God curse me. Now that's certainly a possible translation here, but not necessary. Matthew Lane, New Testament scholar, he proposes another option. Peter's not cursing himself. Peter's cursing his accusers. How dare you make this accusation? May God curse you for thinking that I am one of the 12. Now, if that were true, I think you and I would agree, this is a pretty horrible thing for Peter to say. After all, he knows the truth, and yet he's pronouncing a curse upon them. But there's still yet a third option that's possible. Tim Keller proposes that Peter is not cursing himself or cursing the accusers. Rather, Peter is cursing Jesus. If you think about it, what great greater way is there to silence your accusers than cursing the very one they are claiming you follow. And so he believes that Peter's actually saying, you know what, this is ridiculous. I do not know this man, and to prove to you I don't know him, may God curse this man named Jesus. Surely no true disciple would ever stoop so low as to curse their own rabbi. It's kind of like as kids when we used to say, do you swear on your mother's grave? And we know every kid loves their mom. They wouldn't dare not lie if they did that. Whether Peter curses himself his accusers, or even Jesus, I think we can all agree that Peter has gone off the deep end here. He's deepening the hole he has dug for himself and reminded of that age-old principle of how sin often leads to sin. How we commit one sin And in our attempts to cover it up and hide it, it causes us to sin in other ways until we're just surrounded by a litany of lies. After pronouncing his curse, Peter hears the rooster crow a second time. He realizes what he has done. He is undone by his own shamelessness, and he runs away broken and grieved by his actions. That's the drama of Peter's denials. 
This is how far Peter falls. So what can we learn from it? What can we learn? After all, we all know that the Bible is not just a textbook that God's given us to memorize. Rather, it was breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. And so how does this passage equip us and teach us and correct us? Well, I've got three lessons for you. Lesson number one, we see here that we don't know who we really are until we've gone through the fire. We don't know what our true colors look like until we see ourselves under pressure, under duress. Pastor Lewis last week gave us the great analogy of how we don't know what's inside a fruit until we squeeze that fruit, until the juices come out. Only then do we really see what that fruit is made of. And for someone who is mature in their faith, when they're squeezed, we, we see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But here, when Peter is squeezed, I mean, if you think about it, prior to this episode, we would all think that Peter was undoubtedly the most loyal brilliant, faithful, godliest of all disciples. Who can forget his answer when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? To which Peter proudly declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In fact, his statement of faith is the first messianic declaration of the 12 disciples. Who can forget what Jesus says when the crowds all leave him? And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, do you want to go away as well? Peter declares in Luke chapter 6, 68 through 69, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Beautiful words. Stunning words. Some of the most sublime declarations of faith come out of the mouth of Peter. And yet, what do you notice about all of these statements here? They are all made in the safe confines of Jesus and the 12. They are all made in private. Now that Peter is in the public arena, now that he is under duress and stressed out, now that he is being squeezed here, what comes out is not bravery but cowardice, not faithfulness but faithlessness, not integrity but shamelessness. Now, are we that much different from Peter? Every Sunday morning, 
Inside these walls, we passionately sing. We passionately declare our faith. We are unafraid to pray and tell God we love him, we believe in him, we are followers of him. And yet the moment we step outside these doors, the moment we walk into our offices, into our classrooms, into the public arena, we become incredibly shy, don't we? I mean, forget telling others about Jesus. You and I think twice about praying before a meal. We're so worried what other people might think of us. And so we intentionally keep Jesus an arm length of, away so that we might not have others think we are not cool. And so like my 13-year-old self, we distance ourselves far enough from Jesus so that others might not know or think we are one of those Jesus freaks. I remember a friend, or not a friend, someone who came to our church asked me for advice and said, Pastor, we just got engaged, but my fiance doesn't want me to tell anyone about it automatically red flags. There's something going on there. Pastor Jack Miller is famous for saying, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. Those words are so true. God, by his grace, has opened our eyes to see how flawed we are, how selfish we are, but I guarantee that what you see in your heart, no matter how ugly it is, it's only the tip of the iceberg. Peter right now is getting a glimpse of seeing just how dark his heart really is. The second lesson we learn from our passage is not only that we see our true colors when we're under duress, but we also see just how powerfully liberating and redemptive is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel frees us and redeems us from our deepest shame, our darkest failures. Let me ask you, how do we know that Peter denied Jesus three times. How do we know what he said to the servant girl, what he said to these bystanders? Was Mark off in a distance, perhaps hiding in a van, listening into the conversation and transcribing the conversation? No, the only reason why we know what Peter did is because Peter shared about it. He told Mark what he did. And not only did he tell Mark about how he denied Jesus, but he gave Mark permission to write about it and send it to the churches so that others too might know how Peter, the great apostle, treated Jesus. Now in an honor and shame culture like the 
like the Hebrews, in an honor and shame culture like the Greeks. This was unthinkable. You don't keep stuff that you're ashamed of, that would embarrass you, that would tarnish your reputation. You don't publicize that. You bury it. Especially if you're a leader of the church or a leader of an organization. How else will people follow you and respect you if they find these things out? We see this principle played out over and over again today. How many churches are now guilty of covering up the mess of their pastors? Because in their mind, if this information comes out, our church is going to fold. How many CEOs or senators or politicians, same thing, they try with all their might to cover up their previous misdeeds. And so Peter had every reason to tell Mark, hey, can you keep it between us? You know, these days, we hear a lot of accusations being made about our textbooks in our public schools, especially the textbooks we had in the, in the 70s and 80s, where accusations were being made that they were they're whitewashed, where they're not telling the whole story where the misdeeds of our great founders and heroes of American history aren't really that positive. And so these days, there's a push to, to be a little bit more honest, a little bit more transparent. But I think we can understand why these publishers would whitewash and sanitize the history of these founding fathers. It's because we're Americans. And so we're going to write from that perspective where we are the good guys and everyone else is the bad guy. But such an accusation can't be made here concerning Peter. There is no whitewashing going on. Peter tells Mark, record what I've done. Let others know about how I denied our Lord, which compels us to ask why. Why would Peter authorize this humiliating event to be recorded for all the church to see? I think he gives us the answer in the opening lines of his first letter. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What do you notice about this statement? It's all about Jesus and what he's done. Peter can share, Peter can confess his sins even publicly because Peter knows he has a new life, a new identity, a new hope that is anchored in Jesus Christ. 
And this is what separates Christianity from all other religions and worldly philosophies. In every other religion, in every other philosophy, your significance, your worth, and your value is tied to your performance, your accomplishments, and your track record. If you're a student, your value is tethered to your GPA. So you send your applications to colleges, they value you according to these metrics. In the workplace, your value is determined by your productivity. On social media, your value is tied to the number of followers you have. In sports, your value is tied to your athleticism. In life, for many people, you are what you do. You are the sum total of your accomplishments. For people who are all about money, your self-worth equals your net worth. But Christianity is different. It offers another path where your significance, value, and worth is not determined by what you do, but by what Jesus has done for you. In Christianity, you are not the hero of your story. You are not the focus of your life. Jesus is. In Christianity, you are not your own savior. Jesus saves. Jesus came into this world not to simply show us how to live, That's what Muslims believe about Jesus. That's what Hindus believe about Jesus. That's what a lot of atheists believe about Jesus. Jesus was simply a great teacher, a great moral example to follow. But biblical Christianity says that Jesus is not only a great teacher, he primarily is our savior. He saves us from our own wickedness, from our own brokenness by living a perfect life and dying a sinner's death. And it's only through him that the gates of heaven are open and we can have a living personal relationship with God. And this is why Peter can be so free about sharing his humiliation before the world. He can tell about what he did to Jesus because Peter knows that is not who he is. His identity is grounded in what Jesus has done. As a result, the gospel produces the most honest and transparent people. We can be honest about our past. We can be honest about our struggles and our addictions. We can be honest about our shame because in the end, that is not who we are. The cross defines our identity. The second half of Jack Miller's quote says this, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. 
This is why the gospel can produce such honesty and transparency. And this is the type of transparency and vulnerability that we hope to cultivate here at our church, whether in our our life groups, our discipleship groups. We want them to be places where we can bring all of our junk and yet feel welcomed and loved because of what Christ has done for us. This leads us to the third and final point. I want you to know that Peter's life is not the exception. It's the rule. God loves to use broken and messed up people. In the Bible, God's greatest leaders, more often than not, are also the greatest losers. Noah had a drinking problem. So wasted was he that his sons see him walking around naked. Abraham was a coward, so cowardly that he's willing to put his own bride in harm's way so that he can save his own skin. Jacob was a deceiver and swindler, willing to throw his own brother and father under the bus so that he might gain. Moses had an anger problem, so angry that he even kills a man. David, we saw last month, or at least in December, used his power to rape a woman. The apostle Paul authorized the murder of Christians. Elijah suffered from depression so deep he wanted to commit suicide. And yet all of these individuals, as broken and messed up as they are, happen to be the greatest instruments of God in the Bible. They prove that God loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. He loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And I think it's because those who are the most messed up find God most beautiful. Because they know how desperately they need Jesus how desperately they need a savior. I share this because I know there are stories of great shame in this room. I know there are things that you have done that you deeply regret. And perhaps you've never told a single soul, not even your spouse. And my fear is that these things you have done have psychologically sidelined you from running the race. You know enough to say, Jesus, I need you to forgive my sins to get into the game, but you're thinking to yourself, there's no way God wants to use me. I'm one of those who rides the bench. I'm the one who who watches God use other people. Beloved, God loves to use broken and messy people and messy lives. 
May Peter's story help you to see that nothing we do ever puts us out of the reach of God's grace and nothing we do ever disqualifies us from service. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us that we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. That God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. The reason why you are saved is because God has good works prepared for you that only you can do. And so don't allow these things to hinder you from stepping out in faith and saying, Lord, use me. In my experience, I have found that the greatest healers are those who are greatly wounded. I have found that the greatest counselors are those who grieve and experience loss. The greatest guides are those who know what it's like to be lost. That the greatest servants are those who serve with a limp. And so may the gospel shine brightly in our lives as we cling to him, as we celebrate him, worship him, and as we serve him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Peter's story. We thank you of how it illustrates not only the darkness of the human heart, but also the brilliance of your forgiving grace. And Father, may we respond by stepping out in faith in serving you and walking in the good works you've prepared for us. And Lord, for anyone here who has been sacked with deep guilt and regret over the past, Father, may they experience the freedom that is found in you. And may you use new life, uh, a, a church of broken sinners, for the advancement of your kingdom. May you use us in great ways. We pray this in Jesus' name.